0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Untangling Climate Finance. As you know by now, my name is Jay Tipton, and today I have got a great episode for you. But before we jump into it, I have another review that was posted from a listener on Apple Podcast. This one comes from Captain Wolfen. Captain Wolfen says, I recently discovered Untangling Climate Finance. It nails it with its smart guests and insightful discussions on climate finance making it a standout in the eco-conscious community. The host's ability to engage with experts brings out the best in every episode. I love it, Captain Wolfen. Both the guests and I appreciate your kind words. And if you dug the past episodes, you're gonna enjoy this one. In this episode, I speak with not one, but two guests, Grant Canary and Jonathan Lovner for mass Reforestation. Mass Reforestation is an end-to-end tech-driven reforestation company. At its core, Mass unites a heritage of reforestation pioneers, including the 130-year-old SilvaSeed, plus CalForest Nurseries and the innovative drone seed. Together, they are helping landowners rejuvenate forests post-wildfires, leveraging cutting-edge technology and partnerships with consulting foresters. From developing carbon removal credits to planting over 30 million seedlings annually, MAST is confronting the challenges of post-fire reforestation and seed scarcity head on. MAST has also made a couple big splashes in the news lately. Earlier this month, MAST and Carbon Streaming, which is a stream financing company engaged in carbon markets, entered a new purchase agreement for carbon streaming to secure 91,500 carbon credits from a mass reforestation project in California. The Bacala Ranch project anticipates its first carbon credit issuance by 2026. Additionally, the two announced an amendment to a previous deal that will increase carbon credits from another mass project in Montana to 285,000 credits, up from 225,000. And finally, the duo penned a third purchase deal last September for the MAST Feather River Dome project in California, which is rehabilitating 168 acres that were impacted by the 2020 Bear Mountain Fire. This project is expected to generate 50,000 carbon credits slated for 2025 issuance. So, it's quite clear that MAST is making serious moves with their reforestation projects and credit sales which could not come at a better time because 2023 experienced an extremely high level of wildfire activity across the entire globe, releasing an estimated 2,170 megatons of greenhouse gas emissions. But enough from me, let's hear from Grant and Jonathan. Grant and Jonathan, welcome to Untangling Climate
1: Finance. I appreciate you both joining me. How are you guys doing? Doing very well, this is Grant. Doing great, this is Jonathan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, at the
0: beginning of the episode, I'm always curious to hear a little bit about the guests, so why don't you fellas, just tell me about yourselves, name, job, where you're from, and I also like to hear, if you can, a bit of your career background that got you to where you are today.
2: I'll, I'll kick it off and then turn it over to Jonathan. Grant Canary, CEO and founder of Mass Reforestation, post-wildfire reforestation. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that, but to to the question, I previously, pretty much everything I've done has been in sustainability, so hold some distinguished titles, including maggot farmer, taking food waste, feeding it <laughs> to insects, turning it into industrial protein for, for fish farms, and simultaneously protecting the lowest rungs of the oceanic food system, and then also utilizing food waste, so... Built that out of Bogota, Colombia, acquired by a Canadian entity, got up to a 60,000 square foot facility there in producing maggots and taking food waste. And then prior to that, Vestas Wind Energy in China, Denmark, and the United States, and U.S. Green Building Council way back in the day before it became the juggernaut that it it is today in the Cascadia region. Jonathan, over to you.
1: Thanks, Grant. Jonathan Lovner. At MAST, I work on a combination of carbon strategy, policy, and carbon removal credit sales. I'm a forester by background, and I've been working at the intersection of private markets, forestry, and climate for a number of years, most recently at New Forests, where I was investing in forest carbon projects on behalf of institutional investors. I came to Mass because I I saw the need for reforestation after wildfire, and I wanted to be somewhere I could make more impact faster in a non-incremental way i think the best way i could put it like i spent the last five years thinking about how to manage existing mature forests for better climate outcomes which is important work and necessary but but incremental in nature and now at mast because we work on reforestation after catastrophic wildfire it's like the forest is gone and we're trying to solve for how we get it back which involves biology and supply chains but also finance the voluntary carbon market, which is why we're here today. Mm-hmm. And why don't you
0: educate me on mass reforestation? What exactly does the company do and where in the world are you operating? Yeah, I'll start, I'll start off there and we could turn it over to a couple of our
2: pilot projects. But the where does the company operate? Western 11 states. We, on behalf of many different types of landowners, manage the majority of the seed inventory for the Western 11 states and we grow the majority of California's trees. That's with uh, Silva Seed, which is 133 years old, and then Cal Forest, which we acquired in 2022, which is 40 plus years old. The problem that we're solving, Jonathan mentioned the supply chain is that, what does a land manager do after their forests are impacted by wildfires? And this is, is we work with a number of different landowner types. So this is timber companies. This is tribal nations. This is public lands. This is small family forests, and this is nonprofits like the Nature Conservancy and others. All of them are impacted by wildfire, and what are their options when that happens? And up until the sort of 2000s, you know, one option was more often than not used by everyone but timber companies, which is do nothing, and that the, the forests would regrow. We've now started to see some pretty significant series of papers come out saying that that option, the null option of doing nothing, is we're seeing a decrease from sort of 90 plus percent probability that forests will regrow to somewhere between 40 to 75 percent. And when forests Mm -hmm. don't regrow, one of the big concerns is that invasives come in, and they're more likely to reburn because they don't retain moisture through the dry summer months. The other options are land managers can sell. That's usually a 50% loss in the comparables that we've pulled if there's a buyer that's available. Many places in the western 11 states, the third option there is that they can spend many millions of dollars to reforest for a couple thousand acres, a couple million bucks. A lot of Land managers don't have that capital, even even some of the bigger players in the space. If they weren't planning for 10,000, 20,000 acres of property to burn and they don't have the timber revenues to reforest, that's a big hit. And and then you look at furthermore, there is a. Net present value analysis or the return, it might it might be a 60 to 85 year wait in many areas in the Western 11 states for trees to regrow. That's a lot of compounded interest to compete with. And so that's not economically rational in a lot of places for timber, but it is for carbon. And so that's what we're, that's what we provide, which is no upfront cost reforestation. We utilize carbon removal credits to pay for it. And we take care of the full vertical supply chain of where does the seed come from? How does it get into the greenhouse and get grown? How does it get out to site and get planted? How does it get registered with uh, with Climate Action Reserve? And then subsequently, how do the credits get sold and, and who buys them? And so that's, uh, that's really the problem that the company exists to solve. And Jonathan, I'll turn it over to you to talk a little bit about some projects here.
1: Sure, maybe I will focus my comments on... Our current project in Montana, Sheep Creek Ranch, this is the sort of the northern edge of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So it supports migratory habitat for elk. There's a grizzly bear population in the area, it's hugely important for biodiversity. In Harris Mountain Fire a few years ago, nearly the, the entirety of the, the ranch burned catastrophically to the point where the forest is, is not able to regenerate on its own naturally this particular landowner doesn't have the the means to uh, finance reforestation on his own. And there's not the kind of timber economy in this particular area that would support that that kind of spend in reforestation. So through a, a mass reforestation project and our partnership with Carp Streaming, which we'll get to talk to more in a minute, mm-hmm. we've been able to cover all of those expensive upfront costs of reforestation. We'll be implementing a, a, a long-term conservation easement, and uh, developing a carbon project. And then those proceeds will, will, from the sale of the carbon credits will, will cover all of those expensive upfront reforestation costs.
0: Great. And I guess to help you along in your mission, you all announced a very large announcement in May, so just a few months ago, that you had secured $15 million in financing with Carbon Streaming, who you just mentioned, to advance your pipeline of post-wildfire projects. So first, huge congrats. That's incredible. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And second, can you explain the investment to me? I mean, I can assume you're just going to take the money and go out and try and implement poor projects, but what exactly is Mass going to be doing with all of the, the new moolah? <laughs> uh, well, well, let me, let, me, let me give that some more emphasis on why
2: that's a big deal for a climate tech company, and, and then Jonathan's going to take on all the details and 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 go from there but the 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 joy in this here really is is that like we're there's two or three companies including ourselves that are really on the vanguard of utilizing project finance to fund removals or other restoration activities and we're vc backed vcs historically have had this funny adage of like, in some cases, we don't invest in things with atoms. That's that's, that's basically to say that software as a service SaaS is a much more profitable mm-hmm. business model than anything that has to do with hardware or otherwise. And yet you, you take that in the context of like CO2 removal and you're not going to work with atoms, that gets really difficult. And so the, the like the thinking there is like, okay, well, how is VC like working working with climate tech to actually do the removals. Yes, we can measure, 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 but like where when do we get onto the removal part? The like really critical part, I mean, that's that's why the project finance is such a big deal. And it's and it's mm-hmm. something that we see a lot of companies moving towards so happy to be finding that path. So much so that you know the evidence here we're elemental accelerator portfolio, that's 150 plus companies in the in various cohorts and there this has become such a conversation that they've hired somebody specifically from the finance uh, project finance world to come in and help those portfolio companies including ourselves navigate this space and figure out how do we find the right source of capital to be able to fund reforestation like jonathan just described with sheep creek that's you know that's uh, several million dollars if we do it the if we do it with venture capital that's really expensive capital because that's percentage of the company that we don't ever get back. And so, how many projects can could we do like that before we are simply a you know out of out of percentage of company to give to additional people or have have diluted investors you know so significantly that their return isn't something that they're really very excited about anymore. So the the answer to that is utilize the carbon removal credits as collateral for a loan, and that is what enables us to, over the three-year project window, execute the project, do the reforestation, collect the seed, get it into the greenhouse, get the like existing trees that are fuel for the next fire that are dead and are have no chance of regeneration, get them removed, and then also similarly, get into how do we create, as Jonathan mentioned, that 100-plus years of funded monitoring with the conservation easement, so that those, those trees are protected and then get the credits sold. And so that's that's why this is such a big deal is because this is not just for forestry, but this is for ocean-based, this is for biochar, this is for potentially chemical processes as well. And it starts to create this, to find this path between the right source of capital and climate tech-backed companies. Now we still keep the VC focus, but this is another stack of capital that we're able to to add to our toolbox to be able to execute on projects. And so with that, I think that Jonathan, getting into the the nitty, nitty gritty of how all this works, that's that's where I'll turn things over to you.
0: Yeah, that would be great. And Jonathan, just to tee you up a little bit, I know that this specific type of agreement is called a stream financing agreement, which undoubtedly some of the listeners will not really understand what that means. So maybe you could describe what is meant by stream financing and how that agreement works and then just take us
1: through the way the funding is being implemented. Great, thank you. And I always appreciate the tea up because otherwise I'll just ramble. So, <laughs> Let's start with stream financing. So this is an instrument that's borrowed from other industries, mining and oil and gas. We're borrowing that structure and and we're applying it to good in this case uh, to fund carbon removal. It essentially means that carbon streaming, as the investor, is investing in the carbon project today before that project exists in exchange for a a certain right on the future carbon credits that are going to be generated and issued from the project. So the money goes directly into the project costs. That could be preparation of the site for planting, as Grant was describing, growing seedlings for the project in mass nurseries, getting those seedlings in the ground, monitoring them to make sure they survived, and then all the modeling and documentation and field work that goes into developing a forest carbon project. So CSC, sorry, carbon streaming, invests in the project. MAST does all that development work I just described. Carbon streaming and MAST collaborate on the marketing and sale of the credits generated from the project. Mm. The proceeds from the sale of those credits go to pay back carbon streaming for the money they've invested plus a return on their investment. And then the balance is split between MAST and our and our landowner client, who's the other very important third third party in this equation. Mm-hmm. So we split that balance 50-50. Got it.
0: You answered actually one of the questions I was going to get to. So I appreciate doing that. I know that some of the next questions I'm going to ask, you might not be able to give me the full detail in terms of confidentiality and the agreement that you have with carbon streaming, but I guess to the best of what you can, is carbon streaming getting
1: 100% of the credits that are being generated from a project? So the the revenue from the credits is split between carbon streaming, MAST, and the landowner. Carbon streaming would get paid back first since you know they put their money at risk, and then the residuals is shared between Mast and the landowner.
0: Got it. And are the credits being purchased via ERPAs? Or if you if so, can you explain how you're kind of landing on the strike price for the credits? Is it a fixed price or is it being indexed against the market at the time? Or
1: that's a great question. So yeah, yes, we're selling the credits via ERPA, which for the audience is an emissions reduction purchase agreement. Most recent sale from from a mass project was was $35 a ton. We've mostly been selling this form in this format of fixed price forward agreements. So the buyer is agreeing to take a specified volume from a specified project at a specified price within a within a certain window of time. As the market matures, and mass scales. I think what we're really looking to do is have more longer term offtake agreements with large buyers so that they would cover multiple projects over multiple years. Mm -hmm. That would allow us to focus on what we do best, which is really putting trees in the ground and making sure they survive and less time towards marketing carbon. In terms of the pricing question, you know, I think we've experienced significant price discovery in, in our first months and years as a, as a carbon project developer. We're still at a point, I think, in the market where you have many different credit types, fairly low transaction volume. Most of those transactions are over the counter. That is to say, when Mast goes to sell a credit, it's, it's me or a colleague talking directly with the buyer, doesn't go through an exchange or trade it on a mm-hmm. screen the same volume of information or transparency that you, you might in, in other commodity markets. So it's based on, you know, in, in many cases, what are the alternatives for the buyer, which is to say, like, what are the other types of projects they could be buying from? And, and what, what are those, uh, what are those credits cost, And I want to tee up Grant to talk about that in a second. And I think it's like, also, what does it cost us to reduce the credits? Because these are very expensive projects if you think about all of the site preparation and, and supply chain that that uh, go into creating a successful absolutely. project. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you guys are so involved from literally very beginning until the end. And so that's, I feel like that's a vital element of the pricing. V- very much so. And, and,
2: and I think like, wh- where I'd like to situate this is like to Jonathan's words, like there's been price discovery. What does it cost for us to do this? And then also what are the returns that are gonna satisfy all the parties? and we're at a near 50 50 split if not an exact 50 50 split with our landowners which is a big attractant for buyers because there's been some questions about like how much does the developer take how much does the sure. does the people on the ground take and like we're 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 in partnership there and rightfully like our lender here carbon streaming in this case like they've got to get to their capital plus a, a fixed return before that then sort of waterfalls down to ourselves and the, the landowners so that's kind of how that's structure, but where where is this situated in in the general marketplace? This gets into some of the taxonomy of what's compliance, what's voluntary, what's what's avoided deforestation, what's credit removals. So if we if we head down that path, what you know, what I'd love to have the audience take away is like there's 170 different types of different carbon crediting systems that are out there per ecosystem marketplace. And we're on the voluntary side, not the not the compliance side, the compliance side being some of the the state and government entities forcing very, you know, significant carbon emitting sectors to capture or rather uh, otherwise pay for effectively a tax on the, that pollutant. On the voluntary side, that's where we sit. And then you kind of have to have one more fork down that road, which is, is it a removal or or is it avoided deforestation? Avoided deforestation being like, obviously, no one wants to see the Amazon get cut down if we're thinking about it from a climate perspective. And so how do you then sort of track that? And how do you pay people and compensate people for not doing that? That's not what we do. We're on the removal side, which is how do you pull carbon out of the atmosphere? and we're on the nature-based inside of removals, the others that are sitting in that space are ocean-based. We've got biochar, we've got lime and other processes, and then we've got direct air carbon capture. And so I think as far as that $35 price point, we do very, very large volumes. That's something that we're pretty excited about there. And then where that sits comparatively is you've got Biochar sort of plus minus a hundred. You've got some ocean based in the two hundred to seven hundred range. You've got some some chemical processes and direct air carbon capture in the six hundred to twenty five hundred dollars a ton. So that's in the that's how much it costs to do some some of the removals. And we've seen some pretty negative press with John Oliver, with the Guardian piece, others on the mm-hmm. on the avoided deforestation, some of the methodologies. So I think like where where I would take that is like those credits are generally significantly cheaper because the trees have already grown nobody had to find the seed and grow it and get it planted and the cost of those projects are significantly less but there's been some criticism lobbied at that because it seems like it's very inexpensive it costs 3 to 7 dollars a ton to capture it but or to sorry to protect it and embodied in those trees but it costs three to four bucks to fill up at a pump, like for a gallon, a ton versus a gallon, and they're kind of the same. That seems off, and so I think like the criticism there is driving some reforms there that I think we're we're pretty excited to see. By no means are we yeah. we want to see the Amazon get cut down. It absolutely should be protected. It absolutely should you know people who are who are in those local communities absolutely should be compensated to uh, have the resources to protect it so on and so forth but i think also there's a cry for like well is there is there are there how do we think about like what's moving the needle the most and what's the what's what's the most efficient way to to resource those methodologies and so that's kind of where we sit in the landscape there and yeah so that to, to jonathan's t up i also a tee up there that's i mean happy to happy to have more conversation on that topic
0: well, one thing I wanted to bring up was that, as you'd said, there's quite a bit of criticism going on right now, especially around red plus. but one of the elements of that is the additionality and the nature of what you do in your work, which is going back and planting forests that are burnt down, you kind of dodge that additionality part because that case for the additionality is pretty clear, right? The trees are no longer there. You're planting what is now gone. So in one instance, this is a, a very strong positive case for the work that you guys are doing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think we should just crush the monitoring, reporting, and verification and additionality side. So it, with permission, we'd love to would love to drive into that further if that's all right. Yeah,
0: please, Grant, go
2: for it here's where we sit on this is that I, and I think this is like help probably helpful for folks to just sort of sit through and just kind of sit with this info but like one of the one of the stats out there that is that is very mind-blowing is that California's 2020 wildfires emitted about 127 million metric tons of carbon into the atmosphere that's the estimate and you can read about this in la Times I believe ecosphere is the source if not I'll, I'll follow up when you put it in notes but compare that to the state's 18 years of hard-won policy wins in changing electrical generation, transport, etc., which total only 65 million metric tons. So one year of wildfire, nearly double what the savings of or avoided emissions have been from 18 years of wins at the state level. Mm-hmm. So I think like, just on that basis, kind of heartbreaking to hear that. And there's no bad corporate entity to... To blame. I mean, you can find some for the causes of the fire, but as far as like why are why are we in that place? What what do we do about that? How do we restore things? So what we do is that when we come in and we restore forests, we are doing it at a much lower density. We're doing it with polyculture, so multiple species, and we're utilizing seeds from as close to the fire as possible that we've collected that have huge genetic diversity. Those are the like how we restore for greater fire resiliency. And we can dig into deeper on those. And then on the monitoring, reporting and verification side, when we do a project, there is a when we plant those seedlings out there, there is a wait period of one year where a third party that's accredited under Climate Action Reserve has to come out, do fixed radius plots, which are very old school forestry, which means picking random points and Counting up the trees that are alive inside of those an eight meter circle, the right density, they're alive, they're the right species, and then and only then do does that report get submitted to Climate Action Reserve, and then as a part of the issuance of credits, a percentage is removed for a buffer pool, so that if there is a reversal, our buyers, Shopify, Time, CO two, Carbon Title, others. They know that the credits that they have paid for are either coming from, they're coming from our project, or just like sort of health and auto insurance, they're coming from a buffer pool and every project is paid in a percentage of those credits to the buffer pool. Lastly, the the piece here that's like super critical for those buyers and really exciting is that there's 100 plus years of funded monitoring and protection. So in that in that those project setup costs that Jonathan mentioned that 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 we received a project finance for, there's an endowment that pays for a land trust, another third party, which is a nonprofit, to do to issue an annual report for the next 100 plus years, as well as do a site visit every five years. Where they go boots on the ground, verifying that their right to a minimum quantity of trees per acre has not been impinged, which nobody wants to see it impinged. So that's that's the that's really the like one of the big pieces as far as how we've driven. And all of our projects are in the Western eleven states, so the risk of encroachment, aka who owns this land, who's 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 utilizing it, U.S. land law quite clear on property boundaries so not really a big concern or driving driving factor in the project set up there so those are some of the different pieces on monitoring the reporting the verification make sure I, I turn it over to jonathan to add anything here and and pick up anything i may have missed
1: grant that was great uh, no, <laughs> no gaps to fill i think i would just re-emphasize like you know answering the question like what's different about a mass reforestation project versus another reforestation project the first is that we, we've we built out this vertically integrated supply chain, and so we are doing everything, sourcing the seed, growing the seedlings, putting them in the ground, doing all the forestry. The second is that we're implementing these 200-year-plus, sometimes perpetual conservation easements, which provide a legal guarantee of permanence that's not typical in a carbon project. And then third, the funding of the long-term monitoring and the funding of long-term forest management so that we're, we... Or ensure that that forest is healthy going into the future that the risk of another wildfire is reduced and that from the carbon buyers perspective we, we are ensuring the, the greatest degree of permanence that we can mm-hmm.
2: and what i'll add that, to that is that like 100 years is a long time so so how do you fund something i mean we jonathan and bus you use the word endowment the, the it's just like a university it's it's a big pool of capital invested in the market provides a percentage return and those land trusts aggregate those pools of capital, so that there's a bigger and bigger pool of capital providing percentage return for them to do their their work on a nonprofit basis. So that's something that I think, and it's 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 no different than any other university, other 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 large endowment that people see out there in the world.
0: Right, exactly. It's more or less the exact same thing. I want to go back to the the fifteen million because that is obviously it's not easy to go out and raise fifteen million dollars, and at the same time. As you just mentioned, Grant, the the amount of forest fires that we're seeing in California, all over the U.S., Canada, is unfortunately growing. And so the work that you're doing is extremely important. And so what are the roadblocks or what are the challenges to scaling up the work that you're doing? Because you can't, I assume, just always be relying on hopefully the next like round of, of funding. So the scaling is necessary, obviously. So what are the challenges that you guys are facing and going beyond? Well, I think this is where it's a, this is a public and
2: a private partnership to execute on things. And both are very challenged by what we're seeing with the the increase in the size and severity of wildfires. And just to put some, some numbers on it, if we look at the National Interagency Fire Center data in the United States, the 10-year rolling average, so making sure I'm not cherry-picking anything, from 92 backwards, 1992 to 82 something like 2.5 million acres burned 10-year average now fast forward to today we're at about 7.5 million acres was the 2022 10-year average looking backwards that increase of about 5 million acres is about the size of new jersey so we're Mm -hmm. seeing an extra new jersey burn on average each year. So it's it's stochastic. It goes up and down. But just to put that in perspective, we saw Canada this year, most of the East Coast affected, they lost 20 million acres so far. And fire season is no longer just June, July, August, like, oh, great, it's over. It's like, no, the Paradise Fire was in November. So the longer, longer, longer drying se- dry season is one of the things that is fueling this, which is that we will eventually be at probably a year-round wildfire season if we don't mitigate some of the worst effects of climate change here. Right. That does bring up the question like, why do we expect our forests to survive? Well, at the top of the call, I mentioned that we're seeing the null option of just hoping that the forest will regrow, which is what I was taught in high school bio. We're seeing that de- you know happen less and less. And the reason for that is because the the not only the size, which I've hit, but the severity of fires matters here. So the severity. What's happening is when high severity fire goes through, it can burn all the way up to the top of the crowns of the trees, where a lot of cones are, as well as several inches into the soil. And a low severity fire, which has historically been part of the natural ecology of the site, that's not what happened. It sort of burned the the lower middle half of the trees, or it was like a crumb brulee across the top of the soil, and it didn't destroy all the seeds stored there. So... What's what's changed in the severity? Well, we've had a century of fire exclusion where we've done a very logical thing. Smokey the Bear told us, if you see a fire, put it out, or <laughs> don't start one, right? Like so, like clear, like it would kind of be logical. Okay, if you see a fire, put it out. Well, that's not how nature necessarily managed forests. It, it used, you know, low severity fire cleared out a lot of those fuels, the underbrush, things along those lines. And so now we have these sort of tinder boxes, like you can see Tom Porter on 20, 60 minutes in 2020 saying like, look, you should be like a 10,000 acre fire was this huge fire. And people, the firefighters would be really proud to have worked on it. You get a sweatshirt and so on and so forth. And it was a career fire. You'd see it once in your lifetime. So that gives you an idea of like what a century of fire exclusion looks like. 10,000 acres Mm -hmm. is a big deal. Now we're like twenty million acres in Canada, or we're we're at one million acre in Alaska last year. The August complex fire in cal in California was a million plus. So those the it takes a lot to even make the news these days. And if you look on a map, there's usually several hundred fires in fire season going. It, there might be one or two that hits the the media cycle. And what's what one of the causes of that is, is the density. So we expect our forests to live because we're looking at, for our area of the sort of Northwest, depends on the species and the ecosystem, but we're looking at like 200 plus trees per acre at the, you know, sort of 25 year mark. Where do you see timber production? Well, they're, they're doing the logical thing. Get as many two by fours or board feet per acre as possible. So you might see 300, 400 trees per acre. You look at the Forest Service; you can you can see kind of low acreage, but you can see all the way up to you know in some cases like a thousand trees per acre because they haven't had the budget to be able to do some of the thinning and the prescribed burns. You can hear it on other on other podcasts and locations, but like people call in air quality concerns before the prescribed burns even started, and so that's super frustrating for the Forest Service. We should give them more money to do the thinning. But at the same time, like what we end up with is these these forests that are incredibly dense, and, and and they're they're very very susceptible. So when we restore, we're doing it at much lower density. We're doing it with multiple species. I like to to point to ponderosa pine because it, it it articulates how different species have evolved with fire. The ponderosa pine, like the bark, is kind of like a crush bumper on a car. Like it's evolved to burn a bit. And as long as the fire isn't too severe, the tree will will live. And then similarly, we're utilizing seed from as close to the fire as possible because just like a financial portfolio, the diversity in the genetics manages the risk because it's not just Mm -hmm. fire. There's also ice. There's also insects, things along those lines. So all of that is to say that we expect low severity fire our trees to live and we expect low severity fire because we have much lower density because of the sort of polyculture and some of the other aspects if forests do burn we have an interesting place where we're we're taking things first obviously it's the reforestation but how do we capture that carbon well 60 80 percent of that carbon depending upon kind of species and ecosystems again which i keep having a caveat but the that's those emissions are often after the fire in the decay of those that biomass. So it's something that we're excited about the direction that we're headed there. But but I've been kind of going for a little bit. So let me let me pause there and 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 off, offer some opportunities on, on choose your own adventure on where we want to go.
0: Yeah that was great i actually appreciate you going through all of that what i'm really curious though about is how how do you scale up your business right because as we'd said there's just the fires are bigger they're more frequent they're lasting longer so more forest needs to be reforested what's standing in the way of mass being nationwide or your competitors also being able to address this need of needing to replant more forest in terms of the finance like what's what's the roadblocks that you guys are facing
2: Jonathan, why don't I kick that one off? You, you follow up, and then I'll, I'll put some numbers behind it. But uh, the, the all all of that discussion of like the increase in the size and severity of fires should indicate that neither public nor private has been preparing for this in any significant way. So that means that there is not enough seed. That means there's not enough greenhouse grow space to to grow it, even if there was sufficient seed, and it also means that. The like labor crews to get it out to site are challenged. And then lastly, how do you pay for it all? If and and that's really where we've the, the project finance has come in and has been something that we're we're really excited to be clearing that path. Because without the, the finance, like it's and and that's to say without the lender and without the carbon removal credits. A lot of this work isn't possible because there isn't just a couple million bucks sitting around to be altruistically put into what is economically not a rational investment in many cases if it's for timber, but it's a very rational investment if we're looking at carbon removal credits. And that's because of how how the credits are structured and and we can get into that. But we started off focused on that third problem. How How do you get the... How do you get the material, the genetic material, out to site after a fire? And what we quickly realized, or I wish you know we could have realized faster, but it was not apparent, was that there was a seed supply issue. And then similarly, there was a a growth space issue if you had the seed. So what's the most efficient way to get that, to utilize seed? Well, it's to grow it in a greenhouse. And we, at Seed, like we utilized it in a really significant way and we definitely outperformed natural processes by, in, in, in a degree that we're really proud of. But if we compare it to putting a seedling out on site, we got to a place where we could do more today with seedlings and we could delivering it with, with drones and mm-hmm. drones seed. You've got to have the seed. So we acquired Silva seed in 2021. And what we did there is we expanded the seed available to frontline communities affected by wildfire 3X in the time that we acquired it since 2021, utilizing a lot of software based technology to organize collections and identify where we needed to collect. So we have coverage across the western 11 states that follows the u.s forest service guidelines on kind of the ecological aspects of a site and then great we've got we've got all the seed we're off to the races well we need a place to grow it silver seed has some greenhouses but not nearly to the extent cal forest does and so in 2022 made the acquisition of cal forest and we're now growing depending upon the size of the seedling and and so on and so forth about 25 to 30 million seedlings and so that's something that, just at Cal Forest, so that gives us a lot of growth space to be able to satisfy that. And it's something that's really exciting as far as the knowledge as well as the technology at CalForest and being able to employ that into what is the next iteration of technology-enabled greenhouses look like. And we call that a TerraFactory. Because we like to have fun with words, and uh, we've, got some fo- we've got some folks that, yeah, have a sense of humor about these things. It's, it's a nod in a couple of different directions, but what <laughs> it means is it's a technology-enabled to- greenhouse to be able to grow purpose-grown seedlings for post-fire sites specifically. And the, right. and the reason for that is the supply chain is absolutely overwhelmed. Our, our estimates that the Western 11 states needs about 6.5 billion seedlings billion Damn. with a B, and Damn. then if we look at all of the production capacity for those same 11 states, it's around 139 million seedlings, million even, with an yes. M. Not and you, you could look at other estimates similarly, like the I think New Leaf just came out with something. So similarly saying like, look, like billions of seedling, a billion plus seedlings needed. Not sure how far out they were projecting demand, but again, 139 million seedlings, is, is what's generally produced across those 11 states. So we're going to need a lot more supply chain capacity to be able to reforest after fire. And then when we do, we'll be restoring these low density forests that can manage low, that, that we will see low severity fires in that will be healthy and the forest will survive on a, on a ho- much higher probability basis. Jon- Jonathan, again, run long. So jump in here.
0: No, that's okay. And Jonathan, jump in in a second. But I did want to say that I was going to ask you specifically about the seeds and the seedlings and what's the, the status of that. And so I, you got right to the, to the core of the problem, which is that simply there is a massive shortage. And that is a, a huge issue that needs to be addressed. But I'm glad that you guys are kind of taking that head on. But Jonathan, over to you.
1: Thanks, Jay. And like usual, Grant gets to give the really fun and exciting answer and I'm going to give the more boring answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, the, boor- the boring so- details are where all the execution is, Jonathan. Yeah, right. gentlemen,
1: yeah. this is fundamental to the conversation, fellas. So I'll, I'll offer one response to your question, Jay, about what, a, what do we need to scale a business that has to do with carbon standards and methodologies, and then a second that has to do with capital markets. So on the on the carbon methodology side... I think what we we really need is is a consolidation of standards, so that we know that certain standards have universal acceptance by buyers. As Grant was describing earlier in the conversation, there's there's you know nearly two hundred different uh, carbon methodologies producing different credit types. We we'd like to see that consolidated. At the moment, we are you know as a market, but also mass specifically, we're really still in this mode of doing a lot of storytelling. You know, like. Here's the landowner. Here's their story. Here's all the amazing species of wildlife that are represented on this project, and so on and so forth. In the contest of storytelling, I think we're a winner because we're very good at that. But when, when we're getting to the the place in a few years of doing 100,000 acres a year of reforestation or, or 400,000 acres a year of, of reforestation, that's a lot of credits. It's a lot of projects. It's, it's probably too many stories to tell at one time to convince buyers. So I think we need as standards consolidate, what we'd expect is a a carbon removal credit marketplace that is more commodified and more liquid. So it's easier to sell the carbon removal credits. That makes it easier for us as a developer to go raise money for projects. And That helps us scale, and I think there's we're seeing a lot of steps in the right direction, and and certainly the uh, the ICVCM, the Integrity Council, and the Voluntary Carbon Market, their core carbon principles that that sort of define like here is a good methodology that should hopefully give uh, confidence and cover to all the important corporate carbon buyers of what they what they can buy. So that was the question or the the answer on standard side. And then on the on the capital side, I think there's overwhelming agreement that deforestation is really important for climate, in addition to all the other benefits that it provides. But the challenge is that forests grow slowly. And as Grant was saying earlier, it might be 70 or 80 years before a mixed conifer forest in the the dry part of the western US reaches maturity. Right now, capital doesn't exist that is happy to sit in a project like that for many decades. So we're optimistic that'll come soon, where just like investments in other types of infrastructure, highways and airports and dams and, and so forth, investors in carbon projects will, will be able to take a long-term view beyond the maybe 5, 10 or 15-year typical fund life for a, a private equity type vehicle.
2: Well, I mean, I, 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 John, let's take that into, into how we're solving that problem today, because I think that's a, a worthwhile conversation. I mean, under Climate Action Reserve, what we have are, are two methodologies that, that we are connecting so that we can finance these products. So the first one is a, a climate forward. So as, as we've mentioned, it takes us about three years to do a reforestation project. Ideally, we have the seed in inventory that's local and collected nearby. If we don't, we've got to go out there and get it. Trees don't pump out plentiful crops of cones each and every year. It's potentially as slow as once or twice a decade, and it's a mass event, and that's where we take our name. So we get we get started with a project with the Cheap Creek Project in Montana. We were lucky, and there were a number of species that there was a mass event. And we were able to do the collections in other areas. We weren't able to do those collections, but over that three-year project timeline, that's that's three years to get seedlings into the ground, to get them verified after that one-year wait period that I mentioned, and then get them over to Climate Action. Res- get the get the reports over to Climate Action Reserve. What they are, what we are then utilizing is well we can project with really strong certainty how much carbon is going to be captured over the next 100 plus years. Why, why can we do that? Well, the, we've had so many, many, many decades, maybe centuries here of doing that with timber. And you can absolutely bet that any timber company or the Forest Service can project like, well, for this species and this soil type and so on and so forth, this is how many two by fours I'm gonna get out of this property. Well, going forward, you can convert two by fours into tonnage and then similarly we benefit in a really significant way in in a way that other removal technologies don't don't have the, the luxury of, which is that we've got a living library of trees with tree rings and how fast did they grow and so on and so forth that is there's nearby. It's a data set that's hugely valuable. So we're able to project that and then say, make that very, very conservative estimate and then say, great, this is how much will be projected. That's how much is then credited at the end of that three year time window of what will be captured over the next 100 plus years. And that's a claim. This is how many tons have been credited over the next 100 plus years. And then connect that to a second protocol, which then allows us to verify that projection on a pretty regular cadence, which then those credits are, as the trees grow over the next 10 plus years, those are an ex post credit that uh, can then be retired against net zero claims if companies choose Mm -hmm. to make those or against other climate targets. And then from there, we've got something that we're very excited about with the removal of dead biomass. And how do we, how do we Take that biomass, which we are already going to remove from the site because it's fuel from the next fire and and store that carbon so it's not releasing all of that carbon over the next couple of years, which is responsible for so much of that emissions from a fire. But Jonathan, I want I want to I wanna again tee you up here to to speak to both the climate forward and the US forest protocols and then and then add some of the other crucial and important execution details on this before we talk about before we jump into that.
1: Yeah, certainly. So as Grant was describing, we're, we're coupling these two methodologies. And at a high level, the idea is that through that climate forward, forward-looking methodology, the projects are be, being issued ex-ante credits within a few years of, of the project start that, that represent that hundred years of, of forward-looking carbon removal. Those can be delivered to buyers and provide that important near-term finance that we need. And then over time, we've re-verified the project under that U.S. Forest Protocol ex-post methodology that allows us to then convert those ex-ante credits to ex-post credits over time. They then become fungible with all the other types of credits that we're familiar with in the market, and they can be retired against corporate climate commitments and against prior, prior year emissions. And, and the whole reason for all of this all of this is that if as Jonathan mentioned if if
2: if we we're hanging out waiting for entities to fund 100 years and waiting for the trees to grow like that's that's we had a we had a decade where that was tried and very few if any projects were ever brought to brought to market and so mm-hmm. reforestation similar like simply just wasn't getting done and the reason why is because that's a lot of compounded interest to compete with if people remember sort of the grade school presentation by a bank of like what a dollar would turn into in 20 years with compounded interest like it just it didn't make sense it didn't pencil out financially so this, Climate forward methodology solves for that, allows the claim, and then also allows for here's how what that looks like on an ex post basis and Jonathan, we should do a little reversal here. Why don't you take the fun one on explaining on where we're going with wood vaults and and uh, and uh yeah, and i'll I'll follow up <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I would uh, say it sounds like you know the gears are turning at the mass team for looking towards the future, so Jonathan, please indulge on you know what you guys have coming
1: up. you got it so. As I think we've highlighted in, in the conversation today, like the two biggest challenges we have on each project is is one, like the, the high cost in particular of processing and removing all of the dead biomass that's left over after a fire, which could represent 70 to 80% approximately of the, of the pre-fire carbon is still on the site in the form of, of dead trees. And then the second is lining up the right kind of finance for the project. Something that we're working on currently is, implementation of terrestrial biomass storage projects embedded in our reforestation projects also known as wood vaults Uh, what that looks like is basically we 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 process and consolidate all of that dead biomass and rather than allowing it to decompose, decompose in piles on the site we would store it long term in a vault-like structure, and that could be below ground or above ground, depending on the size of the project and soil types and, and some other factors. And when when done correctly, you can achieve ultra-long duration storage, certainly beyond 100 years, through a emerging methodology. Through pure pure earth, we could receive ex post carbon removal credits within one to two years of starting a project, representing all of that carbon that we are we're storing in the wood vault. Uh, that would have otherwise decomposed. So that helps us solve this operational challenge around what do we do to, to remove this dead material that causes a safety hazard for planters, but also increases the risk of a, of a return wildfire event. And it solves this problem of, of finance to a certain extent in that it will generate these, these high value ex post credits within a year or two that can then provide additional critical finance for the actual reforestation that, that follows. And and I'm so excited about this because this is very much like
2: something that, as far as solving a number of problems simultaneously, it's I I always love that when like there's just sort of this like great here's a here's a key and, and it unlocks a path to much greater scaling and ability to capture carbon. So say our forests, other forests burn in the future. This is something where we can take that and we can store that and that we don't lose that carbon from that work that the trees have done as a highly efficient, highly evolved organism to capture carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's something that's very cool yeah.
0: from that perspective is, just is, is it, it answers one of those key issues there. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we're we're running out of time because I feel like we could have a whole episode on wood vaults alone. So I might have to invite you guys back for a part two where we're just discussing wood vaults because this in itself is a very fascinating concept. And I think that that would be a good conversation to have.
2: I would would love to have it for for folks looking for resources pure.earth Nasdaq backed so you can you can hear a little bit about them and then similarly like if you want to kind of look think and conceptualize around what it looks like at the end it looks like a hill with grass on it or otherwise out of a site in the in the in the way that we would utilize it or if, if folks I think it was a Washington Post article about a month and a half ago like you could think about it in the context of a number of logs in the permafrost were starting to be exposed and then start to off-gas methane, and that was a big problem. Well, this is the opposite of that. It's putting it in, putting those logs in an anaerobic condition so that they're not yeah. breaking down and, and off-gassing methane. That's kind of conceptually what that looks like. But for another episode then.
0: Yeah, perhaps for another episode. And absolutely, I will put links to the stuff you just referenced in the show notes. So for everybody listening, uh, if you want to dig more into this, I will make sure that there's links for you to go explore because yeah, that's cool. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. This was an awesome conversation and I am a huge fan of what you're doing. And I think that you guys are really doing some good work out there and helping the West. And I hope that you guys are able to some point expand because unfortunately we're gonna need it. So thanks again and massive kudos and my, my congrats to the team for the work that you've done this year. And I hope that the rest of the year is as good as the, the first half has been our pleasure thank you thank you Jay and that is it on today's episode I hope everybody enjoyed it and ideally you learned something and just a heads up in the show notes I'm gonna put a link to a video about a a project that mast is doing in cascade Montana uh, a reforestation project that is planting seeds and trees post wildfire so uh, look for the link to the video in the show notes. Also, make sure you tune back in next month to hear my conversation with Rick Gilmore, who is the president and CEO of the GIC Group. Rick and I pivot away from forests and towards agriculture. We discuss his innovative commodity plus carbon futures contracts, which incentivizes emission reductions for strategic commodities, biofuels, and food and feed products. The goal of the futures contracts is to help the entire ag value chain gain in adding value-based emissions reduction practices and preferences. It's a very, very cool approach and you do not wanna miss our conversation. So make sure you tune in next month. And before you go, please take one minute to subscribe and leave a review for us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whichever you prefer. If you listen on Spotify, make sure to hit the bell at the corner so that you get reminders when new episodes release. And as I've said in the past, in addition to Untangling Climate Finance, we record weekly audio versions of our newsletters Sliced, so there is always, always, always a steady stream of new content and thought pieces coming from our channel. And if you leave a review, I'll make sure to read it at the top of an episode. Finally, if you wanna connect, you know you can shoot me an email at jtipton at A link to my email address is also in the show notes. And that is it. Thank you to everyone for listening and always for the support. I will catch you next time. This podcast is produced by Gordian Knot Strategies.